0: It's the Maxwell Institute podcast. I'm Blair Hodges. I recorded this interview a few weeks ago before the coronavirus had taken over in the United States. What a difference a few weeks can make. I'm recording the intro to this episode in the basement of my home here in Salt Lake City. I'm actually sitting in a linen closet right now, trying to find a little quiet space. I hope everybody listening is staying safe and healthy. In this episode, we continue our series on the Maxwell Institute's Brief Theological Introductions to the Book of Mormon, 12 volumes written by 12 different scholars, fresh and inspiring explorations of each individual book in the Book of Mormon. You can learn more about the Brief Theological Introduction series at our website, mi.byu.edu slash brief. There's a list of frequently asked questions there, and availability of books is even more uncertain now with everything that's going on, but we'll keep you updated on social media. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Facebook. Alright, so friends, we've already covered first and second Nephi, as well as Jacob. Enos is next. It's a very short book, followed by two more short books, Jerem and Omni. And Dr. Sharon J. Harris wrote the volume on those three books all in one, Enos, Jerem and Omni. She affectionately calls these the itty-bitty books. Enos is well beloved, but what about the other two books? Sharon Harris is an assistant professor of English at Brigham Young University. She studies early modern literature. She found some really noteworthy things in Jeremy and Omni, too. She says that they're underrated parts of the Book of Mormon. Questions and comments about this and other episodes can be sent to me at mipodcast at byu.edu. It's a bright, sunny day here at Brigham Young University, and I'm joined by a bright, sunny person, Sharon J. Harris. Welcome to the Maxwell Institute podcast.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, you bet. We're excited to be talking about your new book. It's part of the Maxwell Institute's Brief Theological Introduction Series. And you were asked, or did you ask, to do the books Enos, Jerem, and Omni, a trifecta, the only book in the series that has three books in one.
1: Triple threat. We kind of worked it out. There were a few different authors and books to sort out who would do what. And in the end, I was delighted to get these three because it's the shortest textual section of the whole Book of Mormon. So it gave me a chance to really do some deep dives.
0: When I ask people about what they're looking forward to in the series, I've, I've actually heard quite a few people mention the Book of Enos as a standout book. It's short, it's memorable, it's wrenching, it, it has a very strong figure in it in the person of Enos, but maybe shockingly haven't heard anybody mention Jerem or Omni, and you were tasked with covering both of those. What was that like?
1: Honestly, I was excited. And as it's turned out, Jerem was kind of the dark horse for me in this whole project. I didn't know what I would find. And I've come away loving Jerem. And so that's that's great. And then Omni, of course, has a lot of uh, good things to offer as well. But one of the things that has been really delightful is to see the three books work together. I don't feel like it's three separate stories, but it really does kind of have an overall
0: arc. In terms of the Book of Mormon overall narrative, we just got through the small plates of Nephi, which kind of tells this narrative story, right, of a family making a journey and trying to become a people and having divisions in this. If you had to describe in an elevator a little 30-second description of the history that your part of the Book of Mormon covers, how would you describe that?
1: Well, we know so much about Nephi and Laman and the initial story that's told in First and Second Nephi, and then maybe even into Jacob. But this covers hundreds of years in just a few short books. I call them the itty-bitty books. And so (laughs) it is really a sort of bird's eye view of a whole bunch of the ways that this family splits apart. We get nations warring against nations, and they kind of come into their own. They join up with the Mulekites. There's factions and divisions. And so we don't have a lot of detail for a lot of time. And you kind of can see it sets up the political divisions that We know well from the middle of the Book of Mormon with Mosiah and Alma, that kind of thing.
0: There's a challenge to readers that you have in your introduction there that surprised me. You you propose that these itty-bitty books can be read as though they are like the ending of the Book of Mormon, rather than thinking of them as happening at the beginning. Talk about that a little bit. It's It's a very interesting challenge.
1: When we had President Nelson's challenge to read the Book of Mormon, I guess in 2018, I decided to read it in what I'm calling a Mormon's order. Sometimes scholars call it dictation order. And this is the order that we think Joseph Smith would have translated the plates in and he would have dictated uh, this translation. So in that order, uh, we have what's now known as the lost 116 pages that got lost with Martin Harris.
0: So that would presumably have been like maybe the Book of Lehi or something,
1: right? Right, Right. something like that. Mm -hmm. So we start with that, go through uh, Mosiah, Alma, it it kind of picks up in Mosiah, goes all the way through the Book of Mormon in the order that we have it. And then the small plates that Nephi made were appended to the end of that, as far as we can tell. And so we'd circle back around and start with 1 Nephi and end with Omni, and then Words of Mormon is kind of a, a... Addendum at the end. So I read it in that order in 2018 and I was struck by how it changes your sense of the story. It puts different things in priority and it really draws you back around to the beginning with a lot of the prophecies about what the Book of Mormon will be. You see in Nephi's record, and then of course in Enos and Omni seems to, or the book of Omni seems to be waiting for that as well.
0: So people should know you're an English professor, and did that come into play in this analysis? It seems like if you were to take any book of literature and kind of rearrange the order of of how things happen, you could get a lot of different interesting books by doing that.
1: Yeah. In fact, I've even used this idea when I teach some of my theory classes for the English department. If you change the structure of something, different things get focused on. And, and that's part of what I'm seeing with these itty bitty books. If we think about these as the end of the Book of Mormon, what comes into focus instead of thinking of it as bearing the plates, you know, with Moroni, or even sort of the highlight of Christ's visit to the Americas. It, Mm-hmm. changes it
0: yeah and when he's adding these small plates to the record they're far back in time from where he's at and he's now witnessing warfare and destruction did that play right. into his sight of the small plates do you think
1: yeah i think so and i think he saw among other things i think it probably foregrounded what a miracle it is that he f- got the plates at all especially these small plates, that they managed to survive through all of this war and turmoil. Uh, because it, like when you get to the Book of onni you have authors with varying degrees of commitment to their process of preserving the plates. And the fact that they survived across hundreds of years and stayed intact and that we they preserved this covenant, that's one of the things that I focus on. This covenant of what the Book of Mormon will do and how it's going to reunite the family, I think that meant a lot to Mormon. And uh, he saw it as a way of clarifying the point of this whole project he's been engaged in with the bridging and compiling.
0: As I read through the first three books in this series, uh, First Nephi by Joe Spencer, Second Nephi by Terrell Givens, and Jacob by uh, Deidre Green, and on to your book, I noticed that the idea of covenant was fairly central to a lot of what the previous... Right authors in this series recognized. And did you read those texts before you had written yours?
1: I didn't read them before, but as I was finishing the editing process and revising it, uh, my own manuscript, I did. I, I went through and read those manuscripts and same thing. And I don't think that's accidental. I think that we're all picking up on this being a really prominent theme
0: of the small plates. Did you notice any differences in how Covenant operates? And the reason I ask that is because My default assumption is that the Book of Mormon is this completed one whole book that speaks in largely one voice and has one perspective. But when you start digging into the book, you start seeing different voices that might have different priorities and different worries and different causes and different hopes, not necessarily in conflict with each other, but that they're bringing different perspectives. And did you notice that with covenant as you looked at the previous books and then your books?
1: Definitely. It's a, it's a really multivocal process. And I think that's intentional. Well, not intentional, but certainly representative of how the covenant works. It's not for one voice and one size fits all. It's about bringing together all of these different experiences and different people into one covenant and one family. So Nephi has a very clear vision of this. He sees what's going to happen to his posterity. He sees that they're going to be destroyed by the posterity of his brother Laman, or and of course it includes Laman and Lemuel and and there's you know but however you want to put it, Nephi's seed is going to be overcome, and he, he seems to take this really hard. I even talk about this in the Jerem chapter of how he sees this in 1 Nephi fifteen and has a really hard time processing it. So that seems to color a lot of his interactions with his brothers. It seems to color the way that he understands the future and what his project is in making these plates and writing down these prophecies. Jacob, on the other hand, he seems to feel the responsibility to call his people to repentance and do the best he can with a record. Adidre does a great job of explaining how he taps into the covenant and Thinks of it so much in terms of relationships, and then Enos seems to be drawing on both Nephi and Jacob, and he has to wrestle with the hard feelings that have developed over time toward the Lamanites, and also this mandate that the posterity of the Lamanites are the ones that are actually going to save him and his
0: people. By his time, that must have just seemed absurd, right? I, I think yeah. he in, in part himself. because of Nephi, the Nephites' own prejudices, uh-huh. right, right? Expecting bad of the Lamanites and sort of depicting them that way,
1: right? These are the last people that you would expect to be able to do something spiritually good and uplifting or or reliable even. And then Jerem, he, he has a different perspective, I think. He sees the covenant and included in that covenant is if you're not righteous, the Nephites will be swept off the earth. And so he seems to be really anxious about encouraging righteousness. Otherwise, he's not sure the people will survive. Yeah, you get a lot of different viewpoints on the covenant.
0: How does it work out through Omni?
1: Omni is where you're going through five generations and seven authors really quickly. Well, I guess it's five generations for the whole book. But it's it's a number of authors really quickly, and it seems that they are trying to regroup the Nephites and gather strength by joining with the Mulekites, the people of Zarahemla. Their relationship with the Lamanites at that point is sort of a foregone conclusion that they're enemies. And it doesn't seem to be at the forefront of a lot of the author's minds Hmm. in Omni, but it does get uh, revived with Amalekai, the last author.
0: And the fact is because they've been passing this record down that contains the information about that covenant, right? Mm -hmm.
1: Right. And it's not clear to me necessarily how many of them have read all of the prophecies yeah. that precede it, but it does seem to get revived with Amalekai and then sending the plates to Benjamin.
0: I can't resist asking, do you agree with the fact that Chemish or Chemish, I don't uh-huh. know how I've always pronounced it Chemish, Okay, I kind of feel like he and the others got a little cheated that they needed their own there why why don't we have a book of chemish with his one right. verse
1: right yeah well that would be kind of fun then i
0: could do the itty bitty <laughs> many books and it would be difficult
1: to <laughs> put all the like, names on the cover yeah should they have their own books yeah it's fine with me sure
0: yeah okay good that's what i think too yeah i think that would have been neat although the book of mormon song First and second book of Nephi, they would need to add an extra verse, I think, if they did that. So that's a a possible downside. We're talking with Sharon Harris. She's an assistant professor of English here at Brigham Young University, and she studies early modern literature. But she's also published on theology in the Book of Mormon and some research on the history of Latter-day Saint singles wards and she joins me here at Brigham Young University. We're meeting in the JFSB today in our my studio away from the Maxwell Institute. It's a room here in the English department, so I also want to give them a shout out to thank them for providing a little space for us here while the Maxwell Institute's new building is under construction. And we're talking about the book Enos Jerem Omni, A Brief Theological Introduction. Okay, let's talk about Enos. Let's dig into Enos. How much time do you think you've recently spent with him?
1: Well, a lot more than I ever had before, that's for sure. (laughs) That chapter, to be honest, ended up being the most challenging to put together. In large part, I think because this is a beloved book, we love the story of Enos and we identify with it, the idea of wrestling with our own questions and taking them to God and getting a personalized answer that touches us and gives us resolve to do even more. And he continues this prayer and it expands and includes more people. So it's, it's a wonderful story. But to figure out how I, I would put all of it together and do justice to it and...
0: In a single chapter? Right. I do it in a single chapter. I it, in a single
1: chapter. It, it was the longest and I had to kind of uh, sort through just even the order of what we're going to talk about when... Yeah. And rewarding. Maybe I guess we can say I am going to do more on Enos this summer still. Mm. We have the theology seminar from the Maxwell Institute, and I look forward to studying it even more. Even with all the dozens of hours at a minimum, it's been at least dozens of hours working on it, there's a lot more to find.
0: So as you're working, did you ever feel any kinship with Book of Mormon authors? Like, There are several times when a Book of Mormon author will pause and talk about the difficulty of writing or the difficulty Mm -hmm. of expressing things that were really hard for them to express. And I wonder if you felt any conscious kinship.
1: Yeah. And honestly, I don't want to be jumping ahead here, but I felt a lot of kinship with Enos for where he his own struggles and I think some of his challenges and weaknesses Come out. And, and I feel sympathetic to that. But then I also found a lot of admiration for Jerem. So we can talk about that too mm. later, I guess. Yeah.
0: yeah. Um, so as far as Enos is concerned, how do you describe him as a person? What does the short text tell us about him as a real, like as an actual person?
1: I think he was a lot of fun. I think he was kind of charismatic. He seems to just jump right into talking to you, right? I've, I've said this before, but Enos is somebody you can have a root beer with. You know, you can just sit yeah. down and chat, and he he says, let me tell you my story. And he's a good writer. He makes it interesting. He is earnest throughout, tells you about his own struggles. But I think Enos also had some biases that he had a hard time getting over.
0: What kind of things?
1: What was so striking to me is the first 18 verses of of the book of Enos talk about his prayer. And of course, this is what we all know and remember. By the time you get to verse 20, And he's just prayed for the Lamanites. I mean, he's just poured out his whole soul that they can be saved, that the record will be preserved, that it will go to the descendants of Lamanites, and that they will come back to the covenant. He's expended all of this care and effort in this prayer, in this wrestle. And then two verses later, he is ranting about how awful the Lamanites are, and it's just, it's kind of a gut punch. Like how do you go from caring deeply and securing a covenant for this people and then kind of almost in the same breath talking about how they are they have evil nature and they're depraved and they're ferocious and there's there's just he has nothing good to say about them. And that strikes me as coming from a kind of emotional, unresolved personal place. That seems to be some biases that he that he doesn't quite know what to do with.
0: And it's possible that those are even rooted in in things that he'd witnessed and difficult, right. like, you know, for all we knew, the, the Lamanites were committing acts of violence or, you know, right. at this at this point in time in history, not because they're Lamanites, but because this is just the way things were happening. We'll, we'll see the tables turn with Nephites mm-hmm. having their own issues. It's It's not an either or thing. But it's almost, on a very smaller scale, it sort of reminds me of, like, the deep love I have for my children, but then there are times when they just, like, (laughs) drive me crazy. And I I don't want to say that Enos should be so paternalistic over the Lamanites or anything, but I wonder if that frustration is related at all to that sense of lost possibility or squandered opportunity or, you know, I don't
1: know. Yeah, I think that hits on a couple of really good points. The lost opportunity and kind of squandered potential of the Lamanites – I think he does feel that kind of keenly. Nephi certainly does. And why not always?
0: And and that can turn to resentment. Of course, right?
1: I mean, Nephi's always mourning that his brothers don't
0: ask the Lord for themselves, or why
1: don't you just figure yeah, this right. out?
0: And I guess the question is, can that sort of resentment be godly or not? And I think we'd probably meet different readers, different church members, who would say, oh, everything that Enos said there is actually fine. He's just describing reality as it is. Mm-hmm. And you'd get other readers who might feel like, wow, like I don't know that that's very helpful for him to be so accusatory and right. so angry. And How do you reconcile those two different approaches because I I think we get readers that would have both kind of sensibilities.
1: Yeah, this, I mean, Enos sets up a real challenge to discipleship because like you say, this is, he's seeing this people who two generations back are thoroughly his kin. Now they're long generations and I talk a little bit about that as well. These are his family and he's frustrated that they don't seem to do what they're supposed to do or or they're making life so difficult. At the same time, like you also said, they've seen wars and contentions. There's a lot of violence. This is really being asked to love your enemies. And that's the challenge, I think, to discipleship that Enos spells out. The Lamanites at this point are becoming more and more established enemies to the Nephites. How do you love people who have made your life so much harder and who have been violent or who have thumbed their nose at everything that you think is sacred or who don't stay, don't, that seem to tear the fabric of your society apart, that kind of thing. I think part of his wrestle is coming to terms with the fact that these are the people through whom the covenant's going to be fulfilled. And if he wants to pray for, if he wants to wrestle for the souls of the Nephites, that inevitably means wrestling for the souls of the Lamanites, too. Yeah,
0: interesting. It reminds me of Paul saying they without us cannot be made perfect, we without them right. cannot be made perfect, that, uh, that Zion is setting up a situation where it's not about separating the wheat from the tares, you know, right now in the moment. It's about trying to make the best harvest possible with everything growing. Right. Hmm. I was really drawn to how you pay really close attention to Enos' language in his prayer, Right. the actual words that he's using and how he's using them. And you find some parallels in the Psalms, things that I had never noticed before, and I think a lot of readers will be surprised. So let's talk about some of those phrases. For example, when he says he prayed all the day long, you right. find parallels in Psalms.
1: Yeah, this seems to be, I mean, I don't know, it seems quite likely that the Psalm tradition would be something that Enos and his family was familiar with. All the day long is something you can see in multiple different Psalms, and it's this... And so I think he has a model for this kind of prayer and pouring out. And there are psalms of lament and there are psalms of rejoicing and there are psalms of kind of calling on God to make good on his promises and wisdom. And I think Enos's wrestle, he really seems to pull together a lot of these threads that we find in the psalms.
0: So you see, his practice, his prayer here is also being informed by his understanding of scripture, his understanding of worship, yep. which would have been something that he learned in community, in, in his family, right. and, in, and in his basically within the Nephites. That this wasn't just a random prayer out in the woods kind of or in the wilderness kind of a thing, but that he was engaging in some kind of sustained. Practice of worship.
1: Right. Yeah. These are a real worship practices. Another line that seems to comes up in other scripture is the joy of the saints, and it seems to have a lot of temple resonances. I think he's drawing on ritual worship practices. And I also think that a lot of the language in the prayer suggests that this is not Enos's wrestle is not a one and done kind of a thing. He says he prays all the day and all the night, and I don't think that he secured, you know, tick 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 the covenant, that his sins were forgiven, that the Nephites would be saved as long as they kept the commandments, and that the Lamanites would be saved and the record would be preserved. He obtains all of these answers. I don't think that happened in one day and one night. I think this was a much longer wrestle. Um, he talks about his many strugglings. He talks about pouring his soul, whole soul out. And he, he gives the the time frame at the beginning. Maybe that was his own prayer for himself, but it seems that once he finds forgiveness of his own sins, this opens on to vistas of possibility and things that he can think about in seeking the welfare of others for a long time coming. Hmm.
0: And I think this speaks to the fruitfulness of putting Scripture in conversation with other Scripture. A lot of times I think it's easy to read... For me, it's been easy to read Scripture by finding isolated passages that say a particular thing that I needed to hear, or that Mm -hmm. I would need someone else to hear, Mm -hmm. these points, right? And so I can isolate any particular voice in Enos's prayer, for example, and take it just at its, what I would say its face value is, and it stands alone. But what you're suggesting that readers do, and I think what a theological engagement with the text would do is to put the scriptures in conversation with each other. And when you bring Psalms into it, it's not just that you're showing Enos situated in an ancient pattern of prayer that I think is really fascinating, but also the Psalms, by paying close attention to those, we start to see some voices in scripture that we might not have expected. You start to see someone complaining.
1: Uh You start to see
0: someone being angry, even with God. You mm-hmm. start to see someone expressing doubt or fear. You start to see someone expressing joy and jubilation and just mm-hmm. a unbridled enthusiasm. And you start to see that if you don't isolate them, if you take them as a whole, these texts become a lot more complicated, but maybe more representative of individual people's own religious life. right? Have you felt that?
1: Yeah, for sure. I think that, I mean, I think this is part of the appeal of Enos is that he seems like a whole person. There's the rejoicing, there's the struggle, there's the confronting his feelings about other people that aren't always charitable. There's his desire for his family and his kin. There's the desire for people that he may not know as well, like the Lamanites. And these are all multifaceted feelings that we have. And I think the number of voices that he pulls in, when he starts quoting all these things from other scriptures, including, I mean, I think he introduces himself, I, Enos. He introduces (laughs) himself the way that Nephi does, right? But he also says, I've been taught in the language of my father. And he refers to what his father taught and that that prompts a lot of his prayer. So I think he's inviting us to see this as an experience that draws from lots of different feelings and individuals and perspectives.
0: And so he's writing in a genre that he's writing scripturally. He's signaling. Yes, this mm-hmm. is this is the mode and register. I want you to read this text. And this isn't like a private journal or a right, you know, he's signaling to the reader to pay attention that way.
1: Yeah, and I think also modeling that when we really wrestle before God, I mean, for example, the wrestle alludes to Jacob and his wrestle with the angel. And so you're getting lots of layers of spiritual heritage here. And I think Enos is suggesting that when we do this, we are in a community of people who have been seeking God this way.
0: It's so interesting. Like Jacob's wrestle happens at this in this wilderness right. place as well, kind of on the edge of something. And Enos's wrestle sort of happens on the edge of his own worthiness right. and the edge of his own people's relationship to other people. And so when he brings, there's a lot of these <laughs> scriptural resonances that it's when someone like you, when a reader like you starts digging in, I think that it inspires readers to then go notice their own parallels and, and notice their own Things. So the brief theological introductions series in your book is an invitation not to tell people, here's how to read no. this text, but to provide suggestions and prompts and, and help readers become better readers themselves, which seems kind of like what an English professor might be expected to do. It's
1: one of my favorite things. <laughs> That's
0: right. I've got a quote here from the text I'd like to hear your thoughts about. This is from your book. It says, Enos's prayer typifies a pattern of the Book of Mormon as a whole. So his prayer sort of represents, is similar to what the Book of Mormon as a whole mm-hmm. is doing. You say, it appeals to the individual touching millions of hearts in private in highly personalized ways, but yet its ultimate purpose is is to gather together peoples and nations. How does the prayer show you that?
1: Yeah, I say this in the introduction as well. I don't think we get a clearer outline of the Book of Mormon's purpose and covenant anywhere than in the Book of Enos, because he explains that in his, his wrestle for first his soul, then the Nephites, and then the Lamanites, God says that if it happens that the Nephites are destroyed, which of course has already been prophesied to Nephi, then God will preserve record of the Nephites to come forth at a future time to the Lamanites, and that it'll be a way of healing this family. That the rift that started, that has become this national crisis that we watch through most of the Book of Mormon between the Nephites and Lamanites, the way that's redeemed is by getting to the survivors of from the perspective of the Book of Mormon, the Lamanites are the enemy. So we get this record to the survivors of this opposing side, and they come to god and they come to the covenant through this record and there's this reconciliation and i think that redemption for families works forward and backward across time and that is what enos secures in his prayer and that's what the book of mormon is meant to do
0: yeah i see covenant in what's written in the series so far based on what the book of mormon is saying i see covenant as a conversion experience that an individual can undergo and what suggests to me is that salvation in christ happens on an individual level because we're individuals but that it's ultimately not separable from communities right
1: i think we run the risk because and i think this is typical of christianity in general that we want to think of salvation as an individual affair
0: like i'm a sinner i want to be forgiven of my sins become better and be saved by christ individually and this is a
1: personal relationship and it's between the lord and me and that is where we focus on this joy and that's true but that's he only. He gets some of that. Yes, yeah. yeah it, but it is only the beginning of it. Mm. I mean, that's the. That's not even half of his prayer. And so, when we have that personal conversion, the call comes to then expand that. And that's what the covenant in the book of Mormon is about. This is about how are we going to save all of God's children? Yourself, that's not enough. There's a responsibility. If you really are going to convert to Jesus and be a disciple and you really care about the same things he cares about, he cares about saving everyone.
0: Hmm. There's a theological term that you introduce that's Probably going to be new to a lot of readers here. The term is kenosis. Kenosis. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is a a theological term that you bring in a theological introduction to the Book of Mormon. (laughs) So, talk about that term and why you bring it into a conversation about Enos and whether you thought about maybe not doing it because it's kind of a strange word.
1: Right. Yeah. Actually, I have been really struck in my own study and theological thinking about kenosis for a little while. And that was truthfully one of the reasons that I was happy to do this Mm -hmm. volume because. I see it all over Enos. So, the word kenosis actually, that's the Greek word and it doesn't appear in the Bible, in the New Testament, comes from the verb canal. And that comes from Philippians chapter 2, where it talks about Christ pouring himself out. And so, canal could be translated as self emptying. But the thing that we don't expect about self emptying is that counterintuitively, this seems to bring power. We wouldn't expect that we would gain power by sort of emptying ourselves out. It says in in Philippians, it says Christ made himself as a slave, depending on the translation. But you see this exact wording in Enos, that he pours out his soul. And his soul is made whole, and then he pours it out in desire and service and care for others, and in prayer for, for others. There's something, I think, godly that we just, it's really hard for us to wrap our minds around, that if I will sacrifice and empty myself, empty out what my own agenda is or what my own issues and cares are, that there can be power, saving power that comes in for others.
0: And one of the things I've learned from Deidre Green is the idea that this kind of self-emptying sacrifice can be godly. There can also be problems. She doesn't propose that everybody just gets rid of themselves or even diminishes themselves. So talk about that caveat a little bit.
1: This is a tricky thing, and it's the kind of thing that I hope people will read the whole argument in the book because if you move through it too quickly, it's a short book, you can go for it. Um, (laughs) it, But if you move through it too quickly, then it can be uh, misunderstood or even harmful. This is not about being a doormat. This is not about taking bad behavior from others over and over again because you're not worth anything better. Uh, Self-emptying, and I think this is really important. In Enos, he is made whole. And it's from that position of wholeness that he can then give and offer to others. Now, I don't think we can always wait to care for and sacrifice for others. I don't know that that's what it means. But kenosis is not about disregard for oneself. It's about transferring the wholeness and the love that you feel from God to a concern for others.
0: And you find some feminine symbolism here, too, that really stood out to me when you talk about kenosis in the context of Enos and also in the context of of giving birth.
1: If the child and the mother are going to survive, the baby has to be fully delivered. There has to be complete self-emptying. It can't be partial right? And that, I think, is the example that Christ shows, that Paul talks about. And it's what Enos, I think, is wrestling with. He has to learn it's not just enough for himself. It's not just enough for the Nephites. He finds that the very people they are fighting are the people that he needs to empty out his own opinions for and then care for the Lamanites.
0: I have one more question circling back to something that you said earlier about Enos, that that you saw some weaknesses or imperfections on his part. And one of the things I think you draw out is his animosity or anger toward the Lamanites Mm -hmm. as being, being an example of that. So I wanted to ask, you don't see Enos here as a perfect person. You see him with some biases that you've already described and some anger. Instead of rehashing what the biases and anger are, I wanted to hear about examining weaknesses in general. I've heard comments in Sunday School from people that aren't always comfortable with the idea that a Book of Mormon prophet, that we should talk about a Book of Mormon prophet's weaknesses or spend much time with that. So I'm interested in your thoughts about that.
1: I teach Sunday School right now, so I've come across some of this experience too with with my ward. If we're trying to find weakness to just say, hey, look, there it is, and feel a sort of triumph with that, of course that doesn't help. Or Um, even like dismiss the person. Right, or to say, look, they're not valid. For me, seeing the humanity, which includes the weaknesses and the vulnerabilities and the imperfections of someone like Enos, that gives me so much more hope and faith that God can do something with me. Right? I mean, I know my own problems. I know my own holdups. And if God can secure a covenant through somebody for a people that that person doesn't even seem to fully like, then maybe my imperfect hopes and attempts to love others can do something.
0: That's Sharon J. Harris. She has degrees from Brigham Young University, the University of Chicago, and Fordham University. We're talking about her new book, Enos Jerem Omni, A Brief Theological Introduction. On to Jerem, the most famous book in the Book of Mormon, the Book of Jerem, the one everybody's been waiting for, raving Sharon, so. about it. Yeah. <laughs> so, but you make an interesting observation here. You say readers can learn a lot about Jerem by what he doesn't include.
1: Right. Right. I mean, here's the shortest book in the Book of Mormon, and so it's easy to say, well, there's not a lot there. But if you look for what's not there, it's very telling. One of the things that Jerem does right up front is he says, I think that what has been written is, is, sufficeth, and so I'm not going to get into my prophecies and revelations. And if you look closely at how he explains this, it suggests that he's got prophecies and revelations that can stand up with all of the heavy hitters. And he just says, you know what? There's limited space on the plates. That's been covered. And he's happy to refrain and kind of recede maybe even into the background as a prophet uh, in the service of what the plates need to accomplish.
0: Maybe do some kenosis.
1: Yes, exactly.
0: One of the things you notice uh, is the term filthiness is not right. there. This will be interesting. I think, I again, another thing I hadn't noticed before I read your book.
1: Yeah, this was a really interesting thing to find. I'm drawing a little bit on some of Joe Spencer's ideas. And Deidre Green talks about this in her Jacob volume as well. But so what I found is that the word filthiness shows up in all of the records of these writers until you get to Jerem. And looking at the history of this word, it seems to come from uh, Nephi's vision. He sees the filthy river of water.
0: Which which Lehi had just said was... He didn't He, he didn't say it was he filthy. said it was water, yeah. Yeah,
1: he just saw a river, and the angel shows him this filthy river while Nephi is watching the Lamanites destroy his own posterity. And it seems to be almost kind of a voiceover thing. And so he starts to associate this filthy river with the Lamanites. It goes into more detail and you can see how this plays out. But remember, he's also already associated rivers with Laman because that was the name of the river where they stopped uh, shortly after they started their journey in the wilderness. So he seems to start pairing this idea of rivers and waters and filthiness with Laman, and when he gets back from this vision, he encounters his brothers arguing about what the scriptures mean. This is in 1 Nephi chapter 15 and he's weary, and he I don't know if he's feeling sorry for himself, but he's especially down because he's seen the destruction of his people. And so he takes a minute to kind of recover, and he goes and tries to talk to his brothers, and they want to ask about what this dream means that, that Lehi has had. Well, of course, Nephi has had his own version of this same vision, and so he's explaining it to him. and they seem to be able to get along and, and make sense of things. And then the brothers ask, so what about the river? That our father saw. And Nephi seems to just go, it seems to trigger him. He just goes right back into this is filthy and this is where, this is hell and this is where you're gonna go if you don't shape up, basically. And it seems that from this, filthy and filthiness becomes associated with the Lamanites in what we might now call a sort of racialized way. It's an insult, it's an epithet, it calls them out in a way that there's a lot of contempt. in this word. And when Jacob uses it, he talks about, I think he actually uses it against the Nephites. He says, you hate the Lamanites because of their filthiness, as though it's in scare quotes, Mm -hmm. but you're worse than they are because you don't love your families. So you can just see the way that these prophets have used this word. And Enos, when he caps off his list of problems of the Lamanites, he ends it with the idea of filthiness. Filthiness isn't found in Jerem. Jerem just seems to decide he's not going to go there. And he just drops it, even though all the other record keepers before him talk about it in some way.
0: And why did he drop it?
1: I think that he decides... That he's he's not going to have that kind of animosity. He's not going to perpetuate that kind of animosity for the Lamanites. It doesn't suggest that he's buddy buddy with the Lamanites. He seems to be especially worried about the Nephites, including their wars with the Lamanites. But he's not going to characterize this people in this derogatory way. That I think he seems to find it unnecessary.
0: Another thing your Jerem analysis does is you look at the way that Jerem seems to question. A general Nephite assumption, there's a covenant that God makes that's repeated by several authors that if you keep the commandments, you'll prosper in the land. And the problem with that kind of promise is people can come to interpret it in the reverse way, which is to say, if you're prosperous economically or in some other way, therefore you have been righteous, which is kind of different. So talk about how Jerem challenges that.
1: Yeah. Jerem seems to really take to heart the prophecies of his forefathers, including Enos, that if you're not righteous, Nephites, if you're not righteous, you're gonna be wiped off the land. And he doesn't take it as a given that just because they're prospering or just because they, um, Jerem goes into some of the technological developments of the people at this time, But that doesn't, for him, necessarily promise any kind of righteousness, uh, or is not so an indication of of righteousness. The inverse of that can also be that if someone is not prospering economically, then they must not be righteous. And uh, he seems to want to be really careful to just—the only thing— to worry about is whether or not we are keeping the commandments. And he goes through a number of laws. Are they keeping this? Are they trying to keep their covenants in this way? And they use a lot of strictness. He talks about the teachers and the leaders of the people reaching out and constantly encouraging. And it sounds like uh, with some severity, the people to remember to be righteous, because he I think he sees it as if we don't, we're gonna be destroyed. He sees it as part of their own survival. <laughs>
0: Yeah, so there's kind of a critique of prosperity gospel Mm -hmm. mentality here, and people can check out Kate Bowler's interview on the podcast from a while ago. Yeah, I love her. (laughs) So one other theme we'll touch on here in Jerem is time, the taking away of years. The record keepers are keeping track, and there's expectations for Christ's coming, right? Right. But there's also the problem that I think they have a sense that that Christ isn't going to be there tomorrow. So right. they're kind of in this in-between period. So what do you get out of Jerem when you think about their relationship to time?
1: For me, this is a really important question. And I think it's an easy one to pass over because it's, I mean, how many apocalyptic movies are there, right? How many stories of the end of the world do we have and we find this so interesting? or Some even, of them are even good. Some of them some of them are even good. <laughs> I, I might recommend Adam's uh, brief theological introduction. Yes. He, he's looking at that pattern. That's on uh, the, uh, the book Mormon. But we also focus on beginnings of things. The beginning things and the ends of things occupy a lot of our attention but most of the time we're not at a beginning or an ending most of the time especially in terms of dispensations we're in the middle and i think jerem really exemplifies what that means and so it's exciting if there's sort of a new conversion or a new change to go all in with enthusiasm for discipleship or the gospel or whatever or if you can see that the end is coming, we feel very motivated to pray, to remember God, to try and be the way we think we ought to be. But what about... Get the oil in our lamps. Exactly, <laughs> right? We're, we're going to be ready. But if you have this stretch of weeks and months and years where not a lot seems to happen and you're not sure anything is really coming, how do you maintain faithfulness in that? And I think that's the question that the book of Jerem asks for us. And it's not an easy answer. I mean, it takes a lot of discipline. It takes a lot of personal devotion when nobody's watching. This is what Jerem does is he refrains from from using the word filthiness. He refrains from sharing his own prophecies. He doesn't worry about whether or not what his reputation is going to look like. And I think as we've seen, his reputation hasn't been very strong, but it seems to be in the service of what's, what's really important here. And I don't know. I mean, we know that we're in the last dispensation, but I don't know how how soon the end of time is. And I think that we can stand to learn a lot about how do we just endure and be faithful and be reliable and kind and live the covenant when we're in the middle
0: so interesting because so many Book of Mormon people become models for us. And mm-hmm. this is one of the reasons why women wish there were more women. Be- right. And, and, and fortunately, I mean, women can also pattern after, after men's examples. And I'm thinking of like Nephi is this courageous, strong go-getter that goes and does and mm-hmm. keeps the commandments and, and is bold and, and occasionally laments his own weaknesses very right. you know jacob's this marginal figure born in the wilderness born in tribulation uh-huh. who his heart goes out to those who are sort of oppressed and and he's very concerned about that people can relate to that i wouldn't have thought uh-huh. that jerem would be fit into this right. cast of characters but i think there are a lot of people out there who just kind of do their work right keep keep their head down uh-huh. Try to try to do the right things. Try right. to make things better. But that they're kind of these unsung heroes. Mm-hmm. These kind of people that that are behind the scenes that that get the job done. And so there's probably a lot of Jerems out there.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I think that's what sustains the church and the general work of the world. To to quote Frozen Two, you just do the next right thing and <laughs> yeah. you keep doing it. Right.
0: Yeah. Let's talk about. Omni, as you point out, the Book of Omni has more individual authors in it than any other book in the Book of Mormon. So we get a series of these authors, covers 150 years Mm -hmm. in a really small space. I mean, Jacob 5 is longer than, I think...
1: Right, the whole, verse-wise. Yeah,
0: than this entire... In fact, in your entire section, that's right. I yeah, so I have Venus seventy-two German verses. Yeah, right. Right. Uh, so it's it's this little book that covers a big span of time, and people will see uh, as they read your book, kind of what you get out of these. Again, shout out to Chemish or Chemish. I feel uh-huh. bad that I, I don't even know how to pronounce. Well, the you man's say name. Chemish,
1: and I'll say Chemish, and we'll call the whole thing.
0: I didn't think. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Well, I didn't ever think Chemish until I heard you say it, and I thought, you know, I I guess someone could check the early. There's a pronunciation guide right, in, right. in an early edition, uh-huh. but even that was guesswork right um, who knows yeah
1: they were drawing from the deseret alphabet to get yeah. that together uh, yeah right. <laughs>
0: so so who exactly knows but anyway he's in there uh, shout out to chemish or chemish the guy who's basically like uh i don't know about this right. stuff i'm mm-hmm. just you know i'm i'm a i'm a guy i don't know what i'm doing i'm right. just gonna pass this on all right <laughs> i did my thing yeah. i'm a warring man
1: that's well and 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 he seems to have had no expectation that he was even going to get these plates. Yeah, I mean he's Amaron's brother, and it makes you wonder why didn't what? Omni just send them to Chemish in the first place? What happened that Amaron couldn't pass them down to somebody else? It's kind of it's pretty unclear. Yeah,
0: and we don't even get to find out. No, that's it's, do you have a speculation? Um, it's not in the book. This would it's just not be in the pure book. speculation. Yeah,
1: I, I mean, I I wonder if it turns out that Chemish ended up. I mean, maybe he's kind of crusty, but he's the most reliable person to pass the record on. And Amaron's looking around whether he didn't have kids or didn't feel like he could give the plates to them or something.
0: Or he was the only living transmission source or something. Mm -hmm. It's really, yeah, it's really interesting. So anyway, we get to meet these people, and we meet them really quickly. You point out that contention's a key theme in this chapter, though, Mm -hmm. contention. And you pay some close attention to specific ways that that term is used in the book. Today, when I see that term, I'm apt to just think of like fighting or disagreements anything from a verbal spat to Coming to to blows, as and we see that later in the Book of Mormon, you find some specific and particular ways that the term is used that you think we should pay attention to.
1: Yeah, uh, this this was a really interesting uh, word study for me as well because I grew up with memories of a lot of Sunday school lessons and a lot of even family home evening lessons and this kind of thing talking about how we can't have contention. And if you yeah. quote that with this sort of scripture mastery, it used to be a seminary scripture mastery scripture that contention is uh, the spirit of contention is of the.
0: Mm-hmm. i mean you should the, not allow your children to contend one with another
1: not at all right jesus
0: <laughs> says contention is <yeah.
1: laughs> content, i mean and, it, and so it turns into this kind of thing where avoiding contention is
0: it, it i think is for some people they're really afraid of it and, and they think of it in terms of just like unsettled feelings between yeah, people right i think we have to be
1: careful to not say that contention is the same thing as conflict though they're not equal especially if you look at the way it's used in book of mormon so when i started going through and seeing all the uses of the word contention i think there's about 88
0: Hmm. That's more than I even would have thought. Yeah, there's a lot,
1: right? It is always about societal and communal altercations of some kind. And it's not even just conflict, but it seems to involve the prospect, if not the actuality, of war, of bodily harm, of physical violence. And that, the spirit of contention that involves physical violence and bodily harm to others, especially in a communal way, that spirit is of the devil.
0: So we don't see it in Nephi, like when Laman and Lemuel are bruising Nephi up
1: Um, They might say Do that they, they contend, but is...
0: It would be a physical... Mm-hmm,
1: right, it, it, include, it includes physical violence, and in most of the cases, in fact, I, I you're making me wonder, I'd have to go back and look in Nephi's record, but in most of the cases, it's about a communal <laughs> kind of violence. <laughs> and that, you know, there are a lot more people implicated and their safety implicated in that than right. whether or not you're in an argument at the dinner table.
0: Yeah, and that's not to say that, you know, hey, everybody, you can have verbal fights with everybody. it's right. like that's, that's different, But it is saying to pay attention to how the Book of Mormon's using that right. term. I, th- I want to point out this is, again, what the theological introductions to the Book of Mormon are trying to do, which right. is really pay attention, close attention, to the words the mm-hmm. Book of Mormon uses and how it's using them. And that if, if readers learn to do that, there's some really wonderful, interesting, sometimes challenging insights that people right. can get out of the Just text. Just
1: things that, I mean, I, this changed the way that I had understood this uh, all my life. Mm-hmm. Now, it's worth noting that the scripture that most directly talks about family arguments or conflict, it comes from Benjamin in his speech that you won't right. suffer your children to
0: fight and quarrel. Oh, he's so I even got it wrong. Did you yeah. hear that in an earlier question? <laughs> right, So right. He, he doesn't, doesn't use, use contention Mm-mm. there. Interesting. He uses fight and quarrel. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So don't do that either.
1: The <laughs> right, book of Mormon's clear. I, well, and and I want to make this point as well. I try to say this in the in the chapter on Omni that the fighting and quarreling between brothers in Lehi and Sarai's family ended up with national contentions, right. right? And I I should say often the word contention appears with the word war. Hmm. Wars and contentions. So there's a big risk with familial fighting or quarreling, but the risk is that it can lead to collective contention.
0: In the Book of Omni, we see record transfers at a rapid rate, mm-hmm. faster than I think any other time in the Book of Mormon. We see transfer, transfer, transfer. Right. And you don't think that's mere chronology. You, you see some meaning into that. So when right. you're doing a theological engagement, you see some meaning in the very simple, apparently, act of a record transfer. What do you pull out of that?
1: Yeah, this started because both Jerem and Omni start their records. They say, I'm keeping the commandments of my fathers and writing on these plates to pass them down that our genealogy may be kept. And this strikes me because it's exactly the opposite of what Nephi seemed to think these plates were for. He says, we have the large plates that are a history of the people. These plates, these small plates, are for the more sacred things. And so, if we're just thinking of genealogy as a kind of begat, begat begat family tree, then why would they be in these records that, especially by the time we get to German Omni have limited space on them and that seem that are designated for spiritual purposes? And so I start looking and at- And
0: sometimes move laterally in, in right, different ways, right? Right, and this, not...
1: this gets really interesting because the way the plates are passed, I think enacts and uh, illustrates what the covenant of the Book of Mormon is. And that is that they go from generation to generation. Sometimes they go uh, lineally, right, from a father to a son. Sometimes they go laterally to a brother, like with Chemish, or to Jacob, or to a colleague, like when he sends it to King Benjamin. And whichever way, if you go lineally and laterally over time, you create this network that involves a whole family. And you don't even have to be in a traditional family situation to be in this network. That's what the, the beauty of the lateral links, is that it's not just for people that have sort of ideal, traditional-looking families. It can be for people who are single or who didn't have children or who, who can't care for others or, or whatever it may be. It allows for an encompassing of everybody in God's family.
0: That's Sharon Harris. We're talking today about her new book, Enos Jerem Omni, A Brief Theological Introduction. It's part of the Maxwell Institute's Brief Theological Introductions to the Book of Mormon series. You can learn more about that series on our website. Go to mi.byu.edu, and uh, I'll talk a little bit at the end, too, about—we uh, get a lot of questions about when particular volumes are coming out and what the process is like, so I think it would be worth spending a moment talking uh, with with our listeners about that. But before we do that, let's talk about a few tips for readers of the Book of Mormon. So, in preparing this series for publication, the Maxwell Institute invited a bunch of different people to read through manuscripts and to offer suggestions to the authors about how to make them more engaging, perhaps how to make them more accessible and understanding, when you work in the academy, it can be easy to get trapped in jargon. and, and you We know. talk to ourselves a lot. Yeah, we talk to ourselves a lot. And not out of a sense of superiority, but it's just like, these are the circles you run in. And, right. and I asked some of these readers uh, who had read your manuscript, <laughs> some of them are students here at Brigham Young University, some of them are office assistants that work with us. I asked them for their thoughts uh, as I was preparing this interview. And one of them sent an email, and I I loved it enough that I think uh, I'm just going to read this. Now, I apologize in advance because it's very laudatory. And so if you feel, (laughs) sometimes that can feel kind of uncomfortable. I'll brace myself. Yeah. So there's some flattery here. uh, But what she's getting at here, I think is interesting. Here's the email. It says, as I was reading Sharon's itty bitty books, I was constantly amazed by her ability to relate the experiences of Book of Mormon writers to the common experience of people like me in the church. I think her writing allowed me to view each one of these writers in a more intimate and relatable way. They became more real to me. So I guess my question that I would ask Sharon is, what was her process in really getting inside the mind of the authors of the Book of Mormon? What tips would she have for fellow readers of the Book of Mormon to really personally relate to the experiences of the authors without trying to make them just like yourself?
1: That's a great question. Well, I guess I can talk about the process for preparing this book. I tried to start early, so I'd give myself plenty of time. And I tried to take little tiny sections of, uh, because I had so few verses to work with, I had this luxury that I could just take something like three to five verses at a time, read them really carefully, and then just think about any questions I could from them. And then I wrote. If I just think about it, if I just read, that's not as effective for really solidifying my thoughts as if I write it, and so I, to be perfectly honest, the number of words that I wrote is probably what's well, easily more than double the number of words in the book, mm. because there was just a lot of time thinking and writing those things out.
0: Is there going to be a director's cut edition of like?
1: <laughs> you wouldn't want it. Three hundred pages I on the itty bitty books. <laughs> I took I, I I took out the stuff that that is dross, <laughs> I hope. Um, but but that, that
0: speaks to the process though, yes, right? Like yeah, this is what scripture study is, is that like, eh, some of it's going to be something you can scoot off the table, right? That's right. And there's, is. I
1: mean, writing is work. Yeah. And so I can tell myself, oh yeah, I know what I'm thinking about that, but it won't, number one, it won't stay with me. And number two, I don't know it as clearly as I will until I make myself write it out. Mm. So that has, that was a lot of it. But then to be perfectly honest, I kind of felt like I was trying and trying and kind of writing in circles. And then I had this breakthrough day, I can still remember, it was back in May, where I said, you know what, I'm gonna tell this like I were writing a sacrament meeting talk for a beloved ward in New York City. That's where I did my my graduate studies. I'm gonna write this to the Inwood First Ward. And as I thought about those people and how would they like to hear this, and we know each other and they know me, how could I communicate with them? And it just fell into place mm-hmm. and that's when I found how I wanted to how I wanted to express the ideas I was coming across for this book
0: oh that I'm, I'm also sad to hear about that because I know there was an editorial decision <laughs> made at the beginning of the whole process uh, we were listeners I hope this isn't terribly boring but when you sit down to create a series there's all kinds of questions Lots. that you have to sit down through so Spencer Fluman Phil Barlow uh, Doug Thomas the designer Christine Hagland and you know all these other people that are involved in the process are trying to figure out what should how, what should the format of the book be? Are oh. we going to have this kind of table of contents? Are we going to have an acknowledgments page? Are we going right. to have a dedication page? <laughs> Sometimes you'll, people open a book and they'll see this nice italic line there that says, to my mother or right. to, <laughs> to Bethany or you know something like this. I take it, if you had the chance, you might have
1: thank I, <laughs> your word
0: on that on a page like that that's
1: true and i guess they'll have to get it in the podcast yes yeah.
0: yes the editors decided we're <laughs> just in case just do no dedicatory pages keep it keep a clean look for the series uh-huh. and that uh-huh. kind of thing so yep, wow yep. Well, there you go. Uh, what's the name of the ward again? Inwood First Ward. Shout out to Inwood First.
1: Yep, love that place.
0: Uh, and if you'd like Inwood First Ward uh, members, you can write your own acknowledgement to yourself in the <laughs> in the front of your books. That's right. Yeah. So to kind of wrap things up, I wanted to close by asking, we've and we've touched on this throughout the interview, but I want to ask what you think a theological introduction is. You've written a book that's like one. What is a theological introduction, and how can church members and and other people that are interested in reading scripture theologically engage in that kind of a reading themselves?
1: I think that a theological introduction, as we've tried to do it in this series especially, is really faithful and devoted to the text. And it includes reading it and not assuming that you already know what it says. Enos is very familiar Or Jerem feels like I never found anything there before. And so if I'm going to read those the way that I've always read them, I'm going to miss things. But if I look at the text and I look for any echoes, any connections, and then take the text really seriously, really believing that it has something to teach me, I think that's where it starts And then in the process of taking it seriously and finding this community, I mean, like we saw with Enos that he's quoting from other uh, scriptures in his personal devotion and prayer. And feeling that you're part of a community of, of people that have been seeking God for generations, that kind of charity and that kind of care and that feeling of being a part of this enterprise and seeking God together that's what drives theology.
0: That's Sharon J. Harris. She joined us today here at Brigham Young University. She's assistant professor of English here at BYU, and she studies early modern literature. And she's the author of Enos Jerem Omni, A Brief Theological Introduction. It's part of the Maxwell Institute's Brief Theological Introductions to the Book of Mormon series. You can learn more about that series at mi.byu.edu slash brief. And as I promised, I'll take a moment here unscripted, haven't planned this out, but I thought I would take a second because Sharon and I were talking about this before the the interview began. She was asking about where her book was at in the process, and that's a question that we've got from a lot of people. Uh, We originally planned and hoped that the series would appear earlier in the year around the time around January when the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints began their Sunday school lessons uh, the come follow me lessons on the book of Mormon and so the hope was that we could begin getting these books out in January February and release them periodically until uh, the summertime when they would all be ready now when I heard that projection last year I thought it was incredibly optimistic and and I thought that it was that it was possible but, but that it would take a, everything falling in place just right to make it happen. And as happens many times in publishing, it's just not how it worked out. So there's a lot of logistics, um, not only the people writing the books, but then we have to do the copy editing and revision, revisions based on reader responses and things right. like that. So all authors. the editing, yeah. Exactly, so that, that took longer than we'd expected. And then uh, you have to typeset the book and we have a fantastic typesetter, Doug Thomas here at Brigham Young University who's doing fantastic design work when you f- when you feel this book in your hand, it, it, it's a book that you just want to hold. It's mm-hmm. such an artifact itself, and we really wanted that. That was really important to the series is we wanted to treat these books, because of our love for the Book of Mormon, with as much care as we possibly could. And so the design is, in my Biased opinion, phenomenal.
1: Yeah, it's beautiful. And,
0: it, and so it took a lot of time to hammer out those details. Then, uh, because of the way that all worked out, we're dealing with a couple of different printers rather than one printer. We have printer doing the cover. We have printer doing the guts. And then sometimes in the printing process, you'll run into hiccups, which we did with First Nephi, where we had a printing problem that uh, pushed us back several weeks. Mm -hmm. Um, Then not only do you have to get all that finalized, but then you're dealing with distribution and getting books out to people. And with Amazon, Deseret Book, it's always hard to gauge if everything's going to work out in the ways that you want. So a lot of people that pre-ordered First Nephi are expected it in February and are now getting notifications that it, it might not arrive even till April. And we hope that that's not true. We hope that might be a mistake on Amazon's part. I, I don't know. We're still looking into that, but the questions we get now are when second Nephi coming out, when's Jacob coming out, when, when are the itty bitty books coming out? Well, the answer to that is we don't have set dates. And I also want to say, sorry for the missed expectations. We feel disappointed too. We share your disappointment for people who pre-ordered and didn't receive it when they expected it to. Uh, we felt the same. We felt the same. But we also were dedicated to getting it as right as possible, to making sure that we treated the Book of Mormon with, with the amount of love and respect that, that we have for it and that that showed through in our work. So I just wanted to take a second and, and let listeners know about that. Okay, so to answer that big question, when is any particular volume coming out? The answer is, I don't know, but the hope is to get all of them out by around July. That's the hope. So, all right, I made Sharon sit through that because I have one more question for her. And this is a, this, I would call this an unfair question. This is definitely an unfair question, but I think it's an interesting question, I hope. And that is how did working on this book change you as a person? And the reason that's kind of unfair is because maybe it didn't change you in a huge way. And so your answer might not, not seem very impressive, but I've found that when people engage this deeply in a project like this, that they get something, something new out of it that surprises them. So I'm looking for that surprise. And if you were surprised by Enos, Jerem, and Omni, uh, books that you have read many times before.
1: On so many levels, this project has been just a joy. I I did not see this coming. I didn't expect that this would be something I would be working on for the past year. And then it's just transformed this year into being such a memorable one. Uh, I'll start with maybe sort of the self-interested effects. And part of that is that this gives me experience writing a book really quickly, which is just great to have under my belt. And I can feel that it's helping my writing and my research in all sorts of ways. So I'm, I'm grateful for that as a sort of practical matter. I'm also, I should say this changed our family. My husband, Edgy Jeter, has been just a tremendous support through the whole thing, and he's read every page with me and gone over it, and we've talked about that together. So it's brought us together in a way of studying and engaging with the text. It's been really wonderful. But then in terms of uh, what has surprised me, I mean, I have loved the Book of Mormon for years, and I have a conviction that if you'll dig in and really see what you can get out of it, that it never disappoints, right? And that has been borne out again through this. But I will say, for me, seeing these itty-bitty books as, in Mormon's order, in dictation order, as the end of the Book of Mormon, that why would we take this these small little testimonies and have them be the sort of final word of the whole Book of Mormon? This move of carrying records across, tying families together, even if your contribution is small or seemingly insignificant, it, it makes the whole thing possible. If any one of those writers in Omni had not followed through, we wouldn't have it. And so it's just a a testimony to me of how powerful our individual contributions are and how much we rely on each other, even if we haven't met, even if we come from different eras and different uh, places on earth. And it's made me feel recommitted to sort of a whole family of God in the covenant.
0: Thanks, Sharon. This was great. I really enjoyed the book and I can't wait for people to read it. Thanks for talking about it. Thanks again for having me. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Maxwell Institute podcast. And if you haven't done it already, you want to go back and hear Joe Spencer talk about first Nephi and Terrell Givens talk about second Nephi and Deidre Green talk about Jacob. I also posted a comprehensive list of answers to frequently asked questions about the book series on our website, mi.byu.edu slash brief. All right, let's have a look at a recent review of the Maxwell Institute podcast. This one comes from Maya or Mia Scanlon. I apologize. I'm not quite sure how to pronounce that. Uh, They gave us five stars. And they write, the Maxwell Institute is doing some of the most important scholarly work within the church today. Don't miss out. You'll be truly uplifted and edified. Well, thank you, Maya or Mia, and to the rest of you who are listening. We have thousands of people listening to each episode, but we only have about 360 reviews in Apple Podcasts. So it's time. It's time. It's time to review. If you love something, you should say something about it. Tell content creators that you care by writing a review. You'll win the opportunity of having me mispronounce your name at the end of an upcoming episode, and you can't beat that. Also, uh, did you know that we're on Google Play and Spotify, as well as Apple Podcasts? We're also on many other outlets, many other places where fine podcasts are found. More episodes with the Maxwell Institute podcast are on the way, including interviews with authors of our brief theological introductions to the Book of Mormon. All right, until next time, I'm Blair Hodges. Stay safe, stay healthy, and we'll talk to you next time.